We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast with me, your host, Tim Stillman, because Elliot, since we've gone out of the Europa League, he does not work Thursdays anymore. He has made that very, very clear. So I'm stepping into the hosting chair for the second consecutive Thursday before I introduce our guests, which I will do presently. Well, our guests, they're not really guests, are they? Our, our, our panellists, as it were, making this sound a little bit like question time. But before I do that, just a couple of other bits of content over on our Patreon for for patrons if you aren't already a member and fancy becoming a member we do a lot on the patreon side i think it's fair to say there's a good uh, west ham rewatch with elliot and clive um kind of going through some of the things we did quite well in that game i think it's fair to say that when you win six nil away from home you've probably done some things well and uh, and perhaps we'll we'll pull on a few of those threads in this episode as well and yesterday Clive and myself got together to do our one club episode about Arsenal women kind of a bit of an updater about what's been happening there in the last month and it's 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 kind of um we tried to make them relatively entry level um, if you're women's team curious, but I think you still get something out of them if you're a regular watcher of the women's team. So that is also over on the Patreon, and we we do those roughly monthly. Um, so, uh, yeah, go over on our Patreon, and obviously we also have other stuff, scouting pods and instant reactions um, to games as well, which we also now live stream. So plenty of stuff to get your teeth into. However, enough of the sales pitch. Let me present our panellists. Uh, Paul, who you can follow on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. Hello, Paul. Woohoo! And Clive, who you can follow on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Good afternoon, Clive. Hello, hello. Clive, I'm going to start with you just because, uh, and I'm going to give you both a bit of a crack at this actually, because uh, listen, when Arsenal are playing well, Sometimes it's difficult to put the, these podcasts together <laughs> in terms of having a running order because Arsenal playing well actually doesn't create that many talking points, which is really, really nice. And we talked, I think, on the last pod about that that kind of aspiration that 
Arsenal kind of, in a public sense, fade into the background, just start winning games by a few goals so no one notices, no one talks about us, and we're last on match of the day. But one of the things, Clive, that you and Elliot really looked at in uh, the the West Ham game and something I think that has been a bit of a response to maybe some of the troubles Arsenal were having with teams doubling up on the wide players and deep blocks and things like that. I, I think it was James Benj that referred to it as like having three number 10s kind of model. So having a little bit more movement between like the left eight the false nine, the 10, and all of that. And and when you look at the average position charts of the West Ham game, like Trossard, Havertz, Erdegaard, kind of all look like number 10s, but it's actually kind of a big amorphous blob, um, really. That And, and it, it looks to me like this is a bit of a response and maybe something that Arsenal have worked on, uh, potentially, when they're in Dubai. Do you want to maybe set that out in better terms than I've done? And I guess your impression of how much this is a response to an issue, how much there was just a bit of variance involved. Maybe we were just very unlucky to score so few goals just before the winter, I guess. Essentially what's happened is Arsenal have been presented with a problem and at least for now it looks like Mikel Arteta's kind of solved it. Yeah, it's been a, it's been, I think it's been a journey since the Liverpool Cup game, if I'm honest with you. Um, I think we've been... Just been a little bit more aggressive where we need to be, I think, and a little bit more variation of running and movement. Um, I, I always come back to, I said before, so sorry for repeating myself, but the time when I thought we were thinking about how we we're attacking was when I saw that Reese Nelson run out to in from Aaron Ramsdale kick in the FA Cup game. It just hit me like a bullet. I thought, I have not seen that before for ages. So we're now, we're now, the handbrake's off, shall we say. We're now moving. We're now moving, rotating. And I thought, oh, this is good. So obviously, energy in that game was great, but we were a little bit tentative on our last thing that we did, ended up heading our own net and lost 2-0. So we didn't see what we did because we lost the game. You know, and I, and I, was, I kept saying that I found January a difficult month to podcast because I felt we couldn't see the team, we couldn't see the evolution because the results weren't going so well and we had lots of time to think. When we have time to think, as Arsenal fans, we start to think about stuff that's going wrong. So we start thinking about the atmosphere, the youth development, we talk about all these other things, the ticketing and everything that's not quite perfect, we go into that. But I think from a tactical point of view, I'm not at a point of conclusion yet. Um, I'm at the point of we are showing a lot more variation in what we do. Right? So, And the personnel has been different and in played in different positions. But the principles in, of play are really, really key. And if you're, if you're trying to put it down to one word, I'd say rotation is coming and it really showed up in the West Ham game massively. Rotations, different rotations, an increased number of rotations, not just within the pods, but moving from side to side. Odegaard's coming to the left side, overloading that side. Trossard coming to the right side. And me and I did a rewatch of the game. And I honestly, if you watch the first half again and just watch the first half through Trossard, you will be shocked. You will be shocked. He was underrated man of the match in that game. He broke that game open. That all made us think, you know, we won this game 6-0. After 20 minutes, you could not see it coming. And Trossard started to dance and move, and they were broken. He had two chances. They were done. And he just broke the game open and created overloads and created partnerships. And once you do that, then you lean into our talent. So I, I love what we've done with the, the players that we have. I'm not at conclusion yet because we've had various different personnel, 
in different positions. Havertz, for example, playing deep and high, rotating. Rodegaard, oh, sorry, Rodegaard. Odegaard playing uh, low and high. You know, Is that and, the Scooby-Doo pronunciation <laughs> of, of Odegaard? Odegaard playing. <laughs> some people say he's too deep. Next meet he's high. But it's rotation. So if you want to summarise, it's rotation, isn't it? It's rotation. Then my interior, exterior, it's rotation. And that's been the uh, what's word for me in the last sort of two, three weeks. Yeah, that's. I, th- I think that's really interesting. And we, we're going to come on to Trossard in a bit more depth in a minute because we'll, we'll really turn attentions to the Burnley game and, and what the lineup might look like. But Paul, I... So I, I'm an anxious person. I don't mind saying this. And I always say that like anxiety, it's a bit like having two brains or two competing voices in your head. You've got your logical brain that kind of says things are probably going to be all right. But then you've got that other voice in your head that goes, no, everything's going to be terrible. And and it's a case of which one you tune out. And so I'm thinking a lot about how over the last year, 18 months, there seems to be, and it might be I'm zooming in too much, but there seems to be this pattern of like Arsenal do something and it's amazing and then the opponent adapts and then it like hits the brakes a bit, but then Arteta and his staff sit there and like brains trust and and sort it all out and then it looks great again and it feels like this constant kind of I don't know if tension is the right word, but process of like modification, opponents modify, we modify. And on one hand, I'm thinking that means we've got a brilliant coach who gets presented a problem and knows how to solve it. But my anxious brain is kind of saying, how sustainable is that? Um, How many solutions can you come up with? It reminds me a bit, this might be a tortured analogy of that thing that people say about the conservative government in the UK, you know, about how, it's all very well selling off public assets until you run out of public assets to sell off. So where do you stand on this kind of, you know, the, the modifications we're, we're seeing now in response to an issue I think we clearly had? And, you know, how, how are you seeing that timeline? Um, well, I'm with you. I think torture the conservative government. <laughs> no, oh, on the football thing. <laughs> so you, you have made this point... I think on numerous occasions, and I think it's logically absolutely correct that we have a way of playing and and teams adapt to it. But I also struggle with it because if I look at last year, uh, last season, uh, we had a very, 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 probably the clearest clearest defined way of playing, almost a a defined 11. Everybody kind of knew what was coming. Um, And it worked and it kept working. And it only stopped working, I think, when we ran out of players who could. And so if you're good enough, it's like, do we change because the delta between our performances and how other people are reacting is still narrower? Like if you're really good and you can execute and you're getting the goals from it and they're getting better, but it's still a pretty reliable way to go. It, it's kind of a don't, don't fix what ain't broke. If it, if it ain't broke... Don't fix it, Tim. Um, yeah. And so other teams do adapt to you and make it harder, but that also means they play into your way of playing. I mean, um, but obviously variations within that. What you really want is a, a way you know how to play 
that everybody in your team knows how to play. And then the variations you can come up, tweaks within game. It's almost like subroutines within a game that you have more options, etc. And, you know, one thing I would have said about Arteta was when he was missing a key player in the past, I wasn't convinced he was able to adapt the, the system or the way of playing to to come out with a different lineup that got the result, got the impact. And it seems like in part because now he he all the players are his and he's looked for particularly flexible players and the players are better. Like when you you've sent players out, but you can call on Trossard and Havertz into your mix. They're your not quite filler players, but like they're the guys who fill the gaps, even if Havertz may or may not have started in this particular game. Those are very Arteta uh, positional play footballers who you could pop into different kind of looks and ways of playing. And like when it's when you have to look to Ben White to be to step into midfield, guess what? He's probably a really good footballer who can step into midfield a bit more. And so now when he asks to solve problems from his players, he's got players who can do different things. Um, and so I think he's come up. Uh, I think he's probably learned a lot in the choices you make or don't make, the things you ask of players to do and you don't ask them to do. And he probably knew Kieran Tierney wasn't very good at being Zinchenko, but he was still at the point where he was teaching his team, this is how we play, so even if the guy isn't quite... I'm not going to change to... You know, there was a lot of criticism of Arteta. He should uh, play a system that suits his players, and he said, no, actually, I'm going to play our blueprint of how we play and you guys will to the best you can adapt to it because we're not compromising. I'm not confusing the message. This club is going to up and down the club, whether you're in the Academy, whether you're, um, whether we're playing in, you know, there's never going to be time. We don't know how we play, what to Clive's point, the principles of play. And I think it was more than principles of play. It was also until you're really, really good. You can't just rely on principles of play. He had a very fixed way of playing, both in the early days when we play kind of built up from the back and it was we weren't quite good enough in attack, and now when we kind of have all the pieces working. Yeah, I, yeah, I think... I oh, sorry, I've got a bit of a feedback there. It's, I, I think principles of play is a, is a really good phrase, and Clive, I, I know people love when I do this, but um, speaking to Jonas Eideval over the last couple of years, one of the phrases he uses a lot is he says, like, the aspiration for any coach is that your opponents feel like this is the first time they've played against a team like this, but for your players to feel like they do it all the time, that that's the kind of the the promised land to get to as a coach. What 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 are you, What's your thinking along these lines? So when I was out on my walk just now, and for those on YouTube, you can see that on my walk. I've literally, literally just got back. Um, I listened to two or three podcasts, right? I listened to Tim's women's one for Andrew today around Manchester night the weekend. One we did yesterday, Tim, a little bit of that. I listened to a Formula One podcast around the new cars coming in. And there was a discussion around Mercedes and how they're building their car. It looks quite... He looked quite steady and traditional. And it got me thinking about how you build a team. And people are going to laugh. What are you talking about? Well, they've, they've put their car in place so it allows for development. They have their base car, it allows for development. So to do that, you need to have players 
that are, in a football context, that are multi-dimensional. We were talking about rotation in the first answer. A player like Kai Havers is a perfect Arteta player. A player like Trossard is a perfect Arteta player because they give you many dimensions without changing your team. They give you many dimensions in the same game. If you're spending the club's money, the one thing you need to manage in the modern game is evolution. Evolution within game, not just within over a year. And the evolution of how you play, and that just may be a, a, a tweak or a, a group of players in one area, but you must have a certain skill set which allows you to evolve. I don't mean to criticise the players of yesteryear, but they their weaknesses were so weak, we were forced to play a certain way. Maybe let's talk about line height, for example, without mentioning any names. You know, we weren't able to defend our box as well because our fullbacks may not have been quite as robust in certain spaces in the air. So they have they have deficiencies which force you into a game plan that you may not want to do. You know, Arteta's first team, back five. Left wing back was a body was a bodyguard for our left wing striker who couldn't play centre forward really how he wanted to play. Stuck him on left wing, gave him Ainsley, gave him Saka as a bodyguard and said, look after him, will you? And so he doesn't have to come back and he goes and wins us the cup. He was forced to do certain things because we didn't have the dimension, we didn't have the players that could evolve our system within game. Now he's building that Formula One car, he's developing it and he has to because you said to him, people are watching I have to say, I think we're we're a bit biased, but I think we're the most tactically interesting team in the league by the way we play. That's not just in-game, that's from restarts as well. We're the set-piece geniuses at the moment. And everything we do from the goalkeeper's hands, it's so interesting. It's been looked at, it's been stopped, it's been it's been copied. And that throw we used to do to the to the to the byline, right to the corner flag and to get a cut back. The second game, Liverpool stopped that. They stopped that throw. So we change it. We change it. We go again. We go another throw. And we're going to have to consistently do this to stay ahead of our competition. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll talk a bit more in depth about Burnley, but I, I'm thinking uh, simple brain on Burnley, not good at set piece, defending set pieces. Every single team I watch play Burnley, put the ball under the crossbar when they have a corner. And we did that um, against them at the Emirates. But we'll, we'll come on to that. We'll, we'll stick a bit of a pin in that. And Paul brought up the left-back position, which I want to talk about later. So we'll stick a bit of a pin in that. But Paul, I kind of want to stay on this like amorphous blob um, that we've been kind of cultivating up front a little bit between Trossard and Havertz. And personally, all season, I've been looking for that. And I've been missing that because at the beginning of the season, I was thinking, yeah, like those two, surely they can interchange um, quite a lot. And I didn't feel like we'd seen it until recently. But now we've got this kind of three number 10s and that pulls defenders out. So we'd, our wide players no longer have 17 players each on them. But um, I I wanted to ask you, because I know you've always despised Eddie Nketiah, wanted him out of the club um, you know, you've you've been a fierce critic mm-hmm. of of Eddie Nketiah uh, mm-hmm. for a long, long time, and so I I wanted to ask you, like, where does this leave him? Because we're talking about multi dimensional players here. I'm not sure that's what Eddie is at the moment. And where are you on? You know, look, Elliot's not here, so let let's have the Nketiah discussion, uh, and I'll bring that up in his. He's place. listening, and he'll it, use exactly. It. Do do you think this has like long term ramifications for him, 
or do you view it as well in two months time we're probably going to have to do another modification in attack once everyone works out what we're doing and that might well feature eddie more prominently as it did at the beginning of the season um so like the amorphous multi uh, amorphous blob i think is more amorphous multi blob in that we keep taking up shape. It's a dynamic changing thing, but there are different shapes you see all the time. That's the first thing I, I got to take you down on, Tim. Um, the Eddie question is really interesting. Um, like, I think we feel we've seen, at least for now and within uh, kind of a reasonable rain, range of certainty, we kind of seen his level and his level within this kind of a team. Um, I've never thought he was the perfect player. Like, even when he was doing good, this isn't revisionism. Uh, even when he was doing good or he'd have a good run of games, I never thought he was the perfect Arteta player as a striker. I mean, we all would see him more as a pen. Like, where if he has a super, super power, and maybe that's a little strong, a very good power, uh, it's in the box, right? And uh, it's his fox in the boxness. That's not really how we play, and it's not really the looks he gets, and it's not the main thing we've asked him to do. Um, we've asked him to be a false nine when he's really mostly a nine, and he works pretty hard, and he does fairly well, but there are limits to it, and I think he's very much a case of if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. He was in the club. He's a good guy. Um and, uh, you know, people get weirded out that he gets well paid. I think the problem is everybody in the squad gets well paid. And he could have got a very good fee if he moved elsewhere. And I think we still can get a good fee for him when he moves elsewhere. And I think he will move elsewhere. I think we will move. Like, I always check myself with when I'm, I have a tendency to want to defend a player. Is this a player that I see in our lineup when we're, Say we make the Champions League semi-finals two years in a row. Is that one of the players you're totally fine with starting, and it doesn't give you any concerns? And like, we have a few of those. I would say to myself, um, I'm not sure I want him playing for us in the Champions League semi-finals. Right? There's, um, you know, it's a handful of players you have no questions about. A handful of players after that you're pretty happy with there's a handful of players you like well i hope we've upgraded that guy by then so eddie does fairly well but like you see the if you want to call it the three tens the three sopranos um out there doing their thing and you look at the the touch map for um trossard and havertz it's insane they are everywhere in this game odegaard's pretty much everywhere uh, compared to normal times and the three of those just basically started to fill in for each other. I mean, it was Trossard who dropped deep and popped the ball over the top. Hang on a second. Uh, he's our false nine. And as I said a couple of times, um, I was busy with a couple of things while the game started. I thought I was watching the game, but I had a couple of things going on. And after 10 minutes, like, I've no clue. I wish I'd paid attention to the kickoff. I don't know when it, where anybody's supposed to be standing between Odegaard Trossard and Havertz. I think this is a really interesting game, the West Ham one, for saying Arteta solved a problem in a, in a different way, maybe not a new way, but a different way, in that for the first 10 minutes, 
we played out from the back very, very deliberately, and they pressed really hard. I mean, if they gave up the ghost at some point, it certainly wasn't in the first 10 to 20 minutes. I'm like, God, they're really pressing us. You're, you know, they got on to Rice as he was bringing the ball out of the, uh, um, out of the box. They were getting on to players, um, giving us a, a hard time. And, like, we played into it. Um, our Raya played into it, playing out from the back taking on risky angles for passes, short passes. And then we started to turn the crank of pl- going up through the gears. And guess what? When you got up to the front three, uh, our three sopranos, every time they'd receive the ball, they'd be in space. And so the conversation of had people worked us out, we didn't have the problem of, of our triangles on the edges trying to find ways through and then trying to get the ball to a striker who would be Eddie, because the three Sopranos gave us way more space and allowed us to play out from the back. I think those things go together in a way that a more conventional striker, more of a reference striker, like you don't get the two. We'll have the striker conversation, but I'd almost argue you can't have a proper striker and get that kind of performance. It's one or the other. So when you're saying, I want better finishing, is that really our problem? I mean, there'll be a game or two where you say yes, finishing's our problem but we fin we're with our xg right we're not it's not like we're not hitting our xg we just need more xg and this way of playing gives you more xg yeah yeah and it reminds me of that question that actually came into the ask cast during christmas that i know clive you mentioned about um we're focusing on goals but should we focus on assists so it's almost more like the final pass than the final action and uh on well We'll come to Erdegaard in a minute because I kind of want to stay with you on Trossard and Burnley on Saturday at time of recording. We haven't <clears throat> we haven't had Mikel Arteta's press conference, so we don't know whether Gabriel Jesus is fit. And, and obviously, we're in a big week now. Champions League is back, so we've got big game in Porto um, next week, which I believe you're going to be at, and uh, then Newcastle after that. So, like, we're back into the like three get three big games in a week kind of mode. Would you keep Trossard up front? Um, let's say Gabriel Jesus is fit. Um, would would you keep Trossard up front against Burnley? Yeah, I I find it difficult to to sort of change this team. Um, but again, without knowing the information, etc. You know, there is, if you notice, know, Man City last weekend they made a number of changes for their home game, and then they. When it came to a Champions League game of the week, they had all the top boys out. That's basically their Champions League final team. So I wonder what Arsenal will try to do. I still think, um, I don't feel quite as confident about changing the team yet. You just want to get the win. I prefer to go get the points and do it at the weekend and get people out of there. But um, they'll know who's who's in the red zone, shall we say. Um, I, I like... I know, I like Trossard. I've got to be honest with you. I, I like what he does. And if you look back to when we when he first joined and we played him in a position that we weren't sure about and he, he reopened up our goal scoring, you know, and he was really strong on the assists. And he and he was really quite good. Sorry about that. Some other advert just popped up. Um, so basically he was, um, he was a four and one advert, funny enough. <laughs> and so, um, and so, so basically he, he has a way of unlocking other people. And, and I, I said on the podcast last week, did it, there needs to be a conversation about him because 
his output or the output of our team when he plays, it, I'm sure there must be some data around it. It goes up significantly. And we all have this team in our head. And are we missing? <laughs> are we missing the real guy that's, that's opening up this team? Are, are we missing it? I wonder if I'm missing it. I don't pick him in, my, in our strongest team. But I, I think I might be missing something here because performance last week was outstanding. And, it, and it, he made so many other players better. You know, and created so many openings. So, and I thought the manager recognised he took him off after sixty-seven minutes, and a bigger smile on his face ever. That says to me, we're looking after you because you you've just put a layer into his team that other people are not. You know, I do think some of it is out, outcome related because if Gabriel Jesus drops deep and plays the ball at the edge of his area, we'll go crazy if we if we draw the game. If we win the game, we think, what a player he is. Look at his work rate. Look how many touches he has, et cetera, et cetera. So, but even the Forest game where he gets a goal and an assist and the man of the match didn't stop that conversation. No, no, he didn't. Uh, it's, it's a conversation to have. And I, I, I do think the conversation around what type of forward suits Arsenal is the conversation that's going to keep me walking, shall we say. It's really going to keep me thinking and keep me awake. And I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not there. I'm, I'm not there. What we should go for, what our direction should be. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at even City bringing someone like Holland in, like completely changed the way they played, really. And it took them a few months. But I think Holland is that level of player, a, a bit like when Fabregas came through for us, right? And it's like we've got to make the team work for this player because they're so good. And speaking of um, creative players, Paul, that are very good, I mean, I think we've had a good discussion here about Trossard and maybe that's a player we found again in the last couple of weeks and probably quite a good player to try to find if you're suffering with deep blocks. But, I mean, a player I think we always knew that we had, but we really seem to have got him back to, shall we say, last season standards is Martin Odegaard. And, uh, and I feel like on these pods, we've skirted over a bit because there's always so much to talk about how uh, how well he's been playing. Maybe that's just because he's so good, we kind of expect it and it feels unremarkable. But his role has changed a little bit as well. We've seen him dropping deep a bit more. And then at West Ham on Saturday, I mean, we're talking about those three number 10s. I couldn't tell you where Erdogan was really playing because one minute he was collecting the ball off the centre-halves and the next minute he's on the edge of the area, you know, setting up Saka. And, and you know, I think the way he, shall we say, treated Ethan Nwanyeri when he came on as well, just a free swim pool to talk about how Martin Erdogan's very good at football um, and maybe how he's how he's come back towards, I think, some of the form that had us talking about potential like PFA Player of the Year last season. Yeah, look, I'm going to take a uh, controversial position here and say that Martin Odegaard is very good at football. That's um, the kind of controversy, controversy <laughs> and insight that you listen to this podcast for. And insight, yep. <laughs> um, look, uh, there's no getting away from the fact that Dubai seemed to be a really good thing for these guys. I don't know what we have planned for the next interlull, but I would suggest bring everybody to Dubai. Um, Back to Salt BAE's steakhouse. <laughs> yep. Never change a winning formula. Uh, back to having the the social media's kickoff over poor Mikel Arteta taking his kids out for a fun evening. Um, 
But hey, it works. So uh, until the opposition figures that out, we keep doing it. Um, Odegaard, look, uh, I think apart from the fact that, yes, look, the guys are all perkier, um, we often measure players by the games where they're struggling to get something done because they got three or four guys on them or in their area. Okay, you don't put four guys on our Odegaard and Saka, but I, actually if you crowd that particular area of the pitch, then you got four or five guys milling around, blocking the area that Saka and Odegaard play into, keeping them on the edges, and then we talk about the triangles and how effective were they. Sorry, my doggy there. Um, and it leads back to the the three Sopranos conversation, which and he was one of those. I think it was most pronounced right at the start of the game that Odegaard was dropping into places so deep that you don't really anticipate. And I think it was very much the plan. Look, we're not going to attack and press up front. They want to sit in with um, the best part of like 10 players in the box and frustrate and crowd us out. And we're not going to do that. We're just going to pull the ball back deep, play around that end, have space when we move up through the pitch. And Odegaard was the most visible uh, player to drop deep in that scenario. Um, it was very Bernardo Silva. And now Bernardo Silva will wander all over the pitch. I think mostly Odegaard, uh, his, if you track his flights, it's a, he, he tends to pick still fairly um, constant parts of the pitch he plays in, more so than than you expect from a 10. He really has areas of the pitch he likes. It's a question of whether he drops super deep, kind of as a pivot, a second pivot temporarily. And in this game, I'm like at the start, I'm thinking, oh, he's the right pivot. He's playing instead of Jorginho. It's Rice to his left, uh, Jorginho to the right. That's what they had convinced me of in the first 10 minutes. Um, He's a fantastic player. His, His work effort... His professionalism just uh, beams out of him. Uh, absolute top-class professional. Handles himself brilliantly. Always pushing, always leading. Um, never is giving you less than 100%. And I think when we question him or Saka or Martinelli's form, I really feel the three of them are actually super consistent. It's more a function of how is the team giving them space and looks and options and is there, is there movement around them or are they stuck trying to do triangles off to the right and are we saying, oh, is his form's dropped off a little bit. I think you can include, oh, look, Saka's playing really well at the moment. Oh, look, Odegaard's playing really well at the moment. Well, that's because we are creating, if we're doing, if we've got Martinelli on the left and Saka on the right with Odegaard, they're going to put players out there and you got to hurt them through the middle. And we haven't been doing that enough. And it's partly the movement we're, we're talking about in kind of the earlier sections of this. I think it's all about that ability to stir the pot, not having the fixed reference reference points. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Clive, I, I want to give you a go on that as well. I think there are things about Erdegaard, that, um, that really jump out at you, particularly in the stadium. Uh, one of them is his work rate, like leading that press and and also as an orchestrator of the crowd. Um, he's he's very in touch with the crowd as well as the bench. Um, 
but we're talking and and also sorry the other thing is his touch like the there are times where you gasp because of the way he can kill a ball on the left foot uh, out of the air, any angle, and just bring it into his stride. Like he he has the best touch of any player at Arsenal, but by quite a distance. And there are some guys with with you know good feet in there. Um, but for you, Clive, you know we're talking about kind of multifunctional, multi-dimensional players. I wonder whether we don't give Erdogan, not that we don't give Erdogan the credit. I think it's sometimes this just happens with really good players. You skate over them, right? But th- this is a multi-dimensional player, right? Like he's not just in one part of the pitch doing one thing. Yeah, he is uh, someone you can build on and build around because he can do so many things. And number one thing, he can look after that football, you know, and he's got he can see parts of the pitch that. We can't see from our bird's eye view in the seats. He can see it on ground level, and um, past appreciation the way he receives it is um, it's, it makes people step away because they don't want to get embarrassed. So, um, and I will say I can actually one up you on this one, Tim. So I've actually met him, and uh, and uh, when I spoke to him in that interview that I did, we spoke about captaincy, and I was struck by his answer. He sort of said, "I want to do it my way." And that really stuck with me. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And sometimes in all our lives, in our work lives, for example, we're in an environment where we can be ourselves. And they're probably in your more, more successful environments where you can be yourself, do things your way, and it's appreciated. You know, and I think I took that from him without him telling me. <laughs> I took that from him that he's, a, he's able to do things his way his base principle suits the manager's principles. In fact, the manager thinks he's an example. That's why he's made him the leader. If you think about our previous captain turning up in his gold Lamborghini Urus, that's maybe not the quite the example that was needed to be set for a youngest squad in the league. And these are just, just simple little differences in people's approach. And I think his approach suits the environment that we want to create. And so that really stood with me. And so, yeah, not his uh, leadership on the pitch from a technical point of view is obvious. And when he's not doing it, the other guy, Jorginho, is the one that does it. And, that, and that's clear to me. Um, but also, he's, he's a very good footballer, as Paul said, right? Just don't mess about, right? When the, when the ball comes to his feet, we're not we're not stressing, are we? In fact, when he loses it, that's when we get stressed. We say, what's happened to him? He must be injured. <laughs> I mean, like that. <laughs> Why is he playing? And it turns for- out he was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. What's happened to him? We we were all like dumbfounded, weren't we? <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, his his standards are set so high. But I do think the environment suits him, and he he definitely suits us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think any good leader as well. It's you know, if he's the CEO, you're still defined kind of by your your board uh, your exec committee around you your other leaders and uh and i think arsenal have got a, a pretty decent blend there um paul we're going to move on to another hard hitting subject uh topic that that again i think will demonstrate and illustrate the insight that we're renowned for bukayo saka also it turns out quite good at football um I, I, but I really wanted to. Uh, th- there's two sides to my question, and again, I'm going to let you kind of both have a go at it. First of all, 
there was a really interesting interview after the game in light of what happened subsequently. So, you know, he spoke after the West Ham game and he's got like 100 goals and 100 assists this season and, and all of that. And he said, I have my own targets. I know the media like to compare players a lot, but I just try to stay in my own lane and stay focused on what I want to achieve, which clearly the people at TNT Sport did not listen to that interview because they decided to do a big thing comparing him with Phil Foden for some reason like that was a necessary thing to do but I guess the other side of my question here is Paul I I can't put my finger on it and whether it's just me and, and I think this happens more widely I find that Saka's output washes over me sometimes somehow like I'm looking at his numbers this season and I'm still like wow, I thought he was doing well, but I didn't realise he was doing that well. And I feel like that happens to me a lot with Saka. And I definitely think it happens outside our fan base that he has a way that I think just washes over people a little bit, which actually causes him to be a little bit underappreciated. Do you get that sense as well? Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. Um, I absolutely get the... um, you know, Saka's just kind of, he's doing his bit along the way before you look, you know it, and you're halfway through the season, three quarters of the way through the season. He's racking up numbers that almost nobody else in the league is living with. Um, it's partly because he plays every game, yeah. Um, which is a superpower. And like you, you talk about the two voices and the anxiousness. I, I don't really get that. Like that's because you do meditation and stuff. <laughs> it, yeah, I I I kind of have a natural set point, which is not not to worry. Um, but and then I do the meditation, and I, then I really don't. I generally don't like when he's rolling around and holding his ankle, and Twitter has just lit up, or like whatever it is over second injuries. I'm like, what are you? <sighs> he's not injurable. <laughs> have you not noticed he's basically not injurable oh, and no. I know people will be like oh my god <laughs> seriously you think you think the world cares what I say about Saka and that's going to determine his that God's and he's God's like oh yeah there he is Paul <laughs> Cassidy that's what I was waiting for I've been waiting the whole time for him to say and I think I've said it before and he's still not injured he's not injurable stop worrying what? I don't get it. So he's there every game. Not only to complement that, he's a phenomenally uh, consistent player. He he has his patterns. He has his routines. He's very very predictable and very very not stoppable. You can stop him by putting two or three players right in his face in his zone in that he'll recycle it to somebody hopefully in a better position but that's down to everybody else to be in a better position and to do their movements and to Arteta to give him what he's looking for in that area uh, to create options for him um, he's, he's unbelievable I think the the it's really interesting that he talks about his targets and what he wants to achieve and that's why he wants to keep taking those penalties yeah, not it's not because like I think he was crapping his pants against West Ham. He looked he looked re, you know everybody's like oh he's so cool and calm and I was really nervous for him. But there like he looked like he was crapping his pants. But he wanted to take that penalty. 
Why did he want to take that penalty to, to slay the ghost? Yeah, all that kind of stuff. He also wants the numbers, right? The guy who takes the penalties in the team gets another six, eight. He wants to be the guy who wouldn't. If I had his talent, I'd want to be the guy. Uh, I still wouldn't be the guy because you have to have that kind of... He, I, I said it before about him being kind of... Uh, he was an old man when he was 19. His level, he's, he's also a kid when you look at all or nothing. Like he, he has both. Like he's like the kid he eating, uh, eating breakfast with uh, Smith Rowe, giggling about how much fun it might be to score goals against West, uh, you know, against uh, Spurs of the weekend or whatever. And like, and then they went and did it. Um, but like he's super serious. Like Martinelli is super serious on the pitch all the time committed has his goals um Saka wants those penalties because he wants those numbers he wants to be the man and uh very serious about his career and if Arsenal can fulfill those ambitions we can grow old together with him um and I think what we're seeing at the moment is him Odegaard and to some extent Martinelli getting more space and showing what they could have done all along while we were fretting. Certainly, they're doing it a bit more since Dubai. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you look around at the penalty takers in the league, Mo Salah takes them for Liverpool, Haaland takes them for Man City. And that's, I mean, I'm sure they've got sizable goal bonuses written into their contracts as well. But yeah, because they want the golden boot and they're not shy about the fact that they want the golden boot. Um, and Aubameyang took them for us, wasn't a particularly good penalty taker. As much stick as I give Lacazette, Lacazette was 10 times better than Aubameyang from the spot. But Aubameyang came along and was like, you're not going to win the golden boot, are you? I might. So give me the ball kind of thing. Clive, I'm going to give you a go on um, Bukayo Saka being good at football and maybe just to garnish it with a little bit of extra insight, maybe some of the things we've been able to do vis-a-vis what we've just been talking about to free him a little bit more in recent weeks. Yeah, I think um, Rio Ferdinand kicked off a debate, didn't he, in, in the press around whether he's world-class or not versus uh, Phil Foden, but very smart from him. But I think what's unique, what's unique to Saka, I think what he does, the way he brings the ball in and rolls people, can you think of many other wingers that do that, that almost invite the contact? Once they get the contact, they know where you are, and then they knock you off balance and run away from you. But most of the wingers that picture in our minds, they want to they unsettle you, unbalance you, then separate away from you. Right? So, but he can be like a post-up centre forward receiving it into his feet completely square on. He can also take his side on facing in. You know, he can, he can run over the top in one, in first phase, and win the race. So if, you, if you're a fullback and you've got someone who can hold you off on a post-up, receive it and do three step-overs so you're frozen to the spot. Also win the race running backwards. If you can do all those things, you've got a problem. So what you then tend to do is say, I need help. And at the weekend against West Ham, he ran the help off the pitch as well, didn't he? He ran both of them off the pitch. They were both gasping. You know, so they and what they do then is they consolidate. They then hold inside. Holding inside against us in the West Ham game in the home game worked. In this game it didn't work. We just com- combined outside the area and then ran through in a much smarter, more intelligent way. So a winger that can do those things. And then also, 
his decision making when to release the ball from the zone he's in to come out. So you bring the ball in, you attract people in, and then you take the ball out and switch point attack to the other side. And so he's that's why his creative numbers are excellent because whether he's a pre assist or the final ball into the box is really, really accurate. And so the thing that stands out to me since the moment he's coming to the team, guys, is all those things, we can all see them on the TV. We can all go, yeah, mate, you just do that. Just do that. Why don't you just do that? But he's doing it and has consistently had a high decision-making quality about what he does and choosing the right technique. So very good all-round player that we can just, again, similar to Odegaard, we, we just, it's, it's back to the four one analogy. You can build around him. You can move him positionally. You can do what you like because he's got all the fundamentals of the game required to, to do whatever you need in a particular moment. So, um, yeah, brilliant. Best player in the club. And space next to Thierry Henry is ready for him if he stays at the club. <laughs> it's true. Paul? Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Paul, you'd like to add to Bukayo Saka is good at football? I would, and to what where Clive was kind of uh, teasing it, you know, he's talking about Odegaard and... We know that relationship's key. And then the next piece of it is Ben White. And there's a whole discussion about the the inverting of fullbacks and, you know, why don't we use the more natural inverter as a fullback in Ben White? And I think Arteta has sh- clearly shown reluctance to do that. Now, I don't think it's a lack of belief that Ben White could do it from the right-hand side. I think it changes all the angles for Ben White. And the thing, what we... we the foundation for our attack is on the right-hand side. We've seen that's the most stable area. It's kind of where we control the game from, where we control the tempo. And Arteta's talked about giving our uh, sack of the ball in places where uh, he's not going to get injured. Um, so it's, it's that not, diagonal not, pass, right? Like yeah, out to in, yeah. Like and you yeah, see out it, to in, yeah, yeah. Feeding Saka the ball right where. He has everybody, you know, he's moving away from the marker inside infield. Well, infield is where Martin Odegaard is, and that's where people are saying they want to put Ben White to, to invert. And Ben White's supposed to be feeding that pass at that angle, and Ben White's supposed to give him an overlap then to to pull a defender with him. Like Arteta just doesn't want to take that, that whole structure, that positioning apart, let alone the fact, you know, we'll, that Ben White moving inside would push Saliba to the right to cover, and now Saliba isn't central. I think it it's pulling out a few of the things that Arteta thinks is central to how we play, but you could keep it really simple and say, Ben White being in a position to feed our, uh, Saka, uh, Odar, Odegaard being able to rotate a little bit in terms of position but stay really close, and then White having the option to zoom past on the outside – are several elements that Arteta is not going to lose by putting Ben White and Odegaard inside in the same spot, crowding the space Saka wants to run into, pulling player, pulling opponent players into those areas. Um, like we saw White tucking into midfield a couple of times, but I didn't think it was that pronounced or that often. I think it was a necessary thing on the day. Doesn't love it. Worked really well because by that stage, their bubble was burst and we were running nice. rampant. Yep. Oh, thank <laughs> you very much. Yes. Oh, I totally saw that one coming. I'm forever blowing bubbles, Tim. And um, 
Yeah, so I think that's why we basically never see it. He 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 loves that construct of those three players and everything else that flows off it. Yeah, it's a triangle, isn't it, right? And you want them at the points of the triangle. Um, the apex. And- yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And actually the way that West Ham play as well, they kind of have a triple pivot because they've decided to throw Calvin Phillips into the equation for Trivet. reasons that, yeah, yeah, Trivet, yeah, um, for reasons I, I don't quite understand. But Paul, I'm going to stay with you on this because uh, you kind of brought it up earlier um, about, you know, fullbacks, do they invert, do they not? Um, we didn't have Zinchenko for the West Ham game, and <clears throat> this is maybe the first time we've played without Zinchenko, and I haven't noticed um, really. And maybe some of that was because Ben White was coming in a bit. Maybe some of it was other players dropping. But I feel like every time Zinchenko doesn't play, even if we play well without him, I notice he's not there. It does seem to me that another... I don't know whether this is a tactical tweak per se, but basically it seems like particularly when Kivior plays at left back, we kind of just don't ask him to do what Zinchenko does and we 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 work we have other workarounds and there's an interesting interview in the Guardian with Kieran Tierney this week with Sid Lowe and Kieran Tierney talked about how he just didn't feel comfortable doing the Zinchenko thing and it kind of looks like because here's my thing with Zinchenko. Here's why I think he's massively over-criticised. We ask him to play two positions at the same time. Like, guys, that's really difficult thing to do. And there's a reason that not many people can do it. Because it seems like we ask him to be a left-back and a central midfielder at the same time. Like, And he does that really, like, insanely well. Like, so well that it's basically his role and no one else in the league really does it. And it does kind of look like we've fallen on not really asking the other left back to do it. So in, in a world where Zinchenko isn't available for Saturday, it looks like Tomiyasu apparently will be. So we've kind of got Tomiyasu and Kivior potentially for left back. I mean, which way would you go? Would you keep Kivior going at the moment? Would you bring Tomiyasu in? And, and I guess just like a little bit more, more of your kind of impression of what's been happening with, at left back and I guess mm. out of necessity, learning to play without Zinchenko. Yeah, uh, you want Zinchenko for seventy minutes, or depending on game state. I think I think that's the short version of it. Get him off when we're when we got the five goals. We put him in for. Uh, this is one game I agree with you where I didn't mi- miss him, and in fact, it would have been. I would have loved to seen the experiment, but you can over-egg a pudding, and we already had three eggs, basically, uh, in in the batter for the mix, and like a fourth <laughs> the amorphous blob. <laughs> yeah, no, the the amorphous polyblob, <laughs> multi-blob, um, and like, did w- would you need a Zinchenko, Havertz, uh, Trossard, and Odegaard? All do like I'd love to see it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Sign me up. Uh, I don't know if I can. That's some real jazz right there. That's like yeah, that's yeah. like a funkadelic hidden track right there going on. And so Ben White tucked in a bit, and I think we projected that he must have tucked in a lot because with that kind of fluid play, uh, we must have been using an inverted fullback a lot. I don't think I think he did it a few times. Um, I could be wrong. But what you saw was Odegaard dropping in, especially early on. You saw Trossard dropping deep into midfield, into the spot that, like, 
when a player isn't there, there's all that space. And when Zinchenko's there, they know to do something to mark him. But when it's suddenly Trossard drops in, Havertz uh, drops in, Odegaard drops in, he ain't getting marked. So he's showing up as the freest of free players in midfield. And But you need three very capable, flexible players who are all keying off each other, who all spot space and move to it. And, you know, I've, all, I've been very interested to see Havertz and Trossard playing in positions where they could kind of move into those spaces as they open up. They kind of get sucked, in, popped into that space, and the, that creates a space for somebody else, and they move, and then the other guy gets pulled into the next space. And that's, I think, what was going on against West Ham. After we played from the back and pulled them forward and created some spaces in behind and started to find those spaces, suddenly they got all turned around, didn't know where they, they were a half a step off, and spaces were appearing all over the pitch for those three guys to dominate. And everything else was a bit more structure around it. And Zinchenko, I think, would have been standing in some of the same spaces these guys were able to move into. Like, why would you drop in deep and stand beside Zinchenko? And so this was a game, I think, when you play the three Sopranos, I'm going to, I know <laughs> Ben's got that for, there first by saying the three tens and uh, I never like The three tenors is right there. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is the three tenors. I'm going with the three Sopranos. <laughs> when you play them, don't crowd their spaces. You probably only want rice in that space. Uh, I'm I'm probably over-egging this. You probably don't want... Over-egging rice. God, where are we going yeah. with all these puns? <laughs> biryani. What's that rice <laughs> thing with the egg? I don't know. Yeah, but probably a bit of biryani. Um, and so don't crowd his space. Um, but I don't think we play the three Sopranos all the time. I'm going to go hard on that one. Um, <laughs> and I think right now we're in the process of, process of doing down Gabriel Jesus. And just like the other guys, give this guy a bit of space. Uh, Gabriel Jesus will make merry. He's a fantastic player and he is not falling out of my starting 11 by any means. And that's a whole other topic along with the, yep. what kind of striker would you like next? And like, by the way, on the striker topic, yeah, I'd love Haaland. Thank you very much. I didn't know we had unlimited budget and there's a player as good as him. But I'm not sure I'd I'd, I'd throw this all away for Hoyland or for uh, bloody... Even yeah, like, yeah, I'd love him in my squad, but you're you're going to a more fixed structure. If you like this, you can't have that is basically how I no. feel about it. Have an option, got all the money to do it. Do I want one of those guys on the bench? Sure. Uh, but we don't have unlimited money. Um, there are very, very few strikers where I say, well, I'd, I'd give up a big chunk of what we saw at the weekend to play that guy most games. And if you, you spend a shitload of money, you're changing how you play because that guy is supposed to start most of the time. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that probably underscores the Ivan Tony discussion as well. So, Clive, um, weirdly enough, we were talking about left backs there and uh, we, we got onto Holland and Ivan Tony. <laughs> <It's, laughs> we're taking this amorphous blob thing uh, too far. Um, it's all getting a little bit psychedelic. Clive, a, a little little chaser before I want to talk about Fabio Vieira a bit, but who are you starting at left-back on Saturday? 
Um, Assuming probably, everyone's fit. I'd, say I'd probably keep the team the same, but I'd probably look to introduce Tommy Asu back into the group slowly but surely. Yeah. Um, I just think he's um, just a bit more experienced, a bit more active in more areas, a bit more confident in his distributing. Um, and his one-on-one defending is, is excellent. And for many, you know, yeah, I just think he's a, he's a wonderful player. And the only thing that stops him from being really wonderful is that his cars blow up every now and again, right? So, um, and that's a problem. But it doesn't seem to be a problem for the club because he's about to sign a new contract. So wherever he is, they feel they can manage it. Um, so it's going to be a situation where he'll be managed with us going forward. So, yeah, I, w- I would keep it very, very similar, and I would, I would you know, end the side, you know, slightly, di- <clears throat> slightly differently. Um, I think Smith Rowe's a bit unlucky to miss an on-ball game like West Ham, but maybe we wouldn't have seen the Trossard Havertz thing, you know. So, which I think is very sustainable at a very high level, and it wasn't. Go ahead, mate. Sorry. No, 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 no. That, sorry. Uh, it wasn't the fact that they passed each other all day because they didn't, but their their interchangeability was was wonderful. And um, so, yeah, I, I look at it that way. But Smith Rowe missed out a chance to get on the ball, really, and really have an impact. And I, I feel for him really. Um, but that's that's a problem he has about being robust at the critical moments. Nelson had that for a long time, didn't he? Every time he got a bit of a run, bang, so it would go. Um, so yeah, it's a challenge. Health is just a challenge for footballers. Yeah, I'd keep it that way, Tim. I wouldn't. I wouldn't mess about too much. Just want to get the game done because Champions League is the first knockout tie we've had for six, seven years, and it brings a level of emotional drain, right? So, um, and so the game that we we got without looking ahead too far, Champions League game is just is what it is. A separate entity in itself. Hopefully, it goes well. But Newcastle, mate, Saturday night, eight o'clock kickoff, North London. Plenty of pre-drink time. Gee whiz, that could be that could be a special evening, right? So, um, and we and we owe them one. So that's two big emotional games in in, in home games. So just just get this one done. We said last week, didn't we? Let's, let's keep it ourselves under the radar. Go to West Ham, just win one nil. What do we do? Go and win six nil. So everyone's talking about us and everything that we do. But I could do. I'd be happy with a one nil. I, I wouldn't, but you know, I'll be happy with a one nil. Just get the win and save our emotional energy for the two massive games next week. And yeah, you referenced Smith Rowe there. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because there are reports that Fabio Vieira um, is is very close to coming back and clearly for him going for uh, a tie against FC Porto, a little mm. bit of extra motivation for him there. I'm sure he'd love to be in the squad at least for that game. You know, we're talking a lot about amorphous blobs and players that, do this and that. I mean, a lot of the stuff I read about Fabio Vieira at Porto was that this is a guy that plays three different positions in one game where Porto would have him left central midfield, left back, false nine, all in the space of a game. And, And maybe that's cost him a little, maybe he, to this point, has fallen into that Maitland-Niles vortex where sometimes mm. you can be too versatile and you can't nail down a place. But if we're talking about Arsenal becoming a little bit more fluid, however long that lasts, like I, I guess do you see Fabio Vieira as a good player to come into that uh, that that kind of framework and maybe what that might need, mean for Smith Rowe, who kind of got a sniff row as it were and you know turned his ankle at the wrong time and and what 
I guess for Smith Rowe, both Trossard playing well and Vieira coming back potentially does. Yeah, every minute counts. That's why I, I felt so for Smith Rowe. Every minute counts. Because you're, what you're doing now is your and how you're training and how you're reacting and behaving is driving the recruitment and selling strategy for the summer. And so, you know, if Smith Rowe was to explode, then maybe you know, it sounds crazy now when Trussard's basically to have Man of the Max game. <laughs> We would look at Trossard and say, well, actually, maybe we move him on. You know, if Fiera does really, really well, then we, we have a decision to make. And at this moment in time, Trossard's come into his team for the last year and he's delivered. So he has delivered. He stayed healthy. He's delivered assists. He's delivered goals. He's delivered pattern of play. And he works hard off the ball. So he's doing his job, right? Give me a new contract, son. You know? <coughs> Excuse me, Smith Rowe and Vieira, they're memories at the moment. They're, they're memories. You know, I think they've both got huge potential, but they're memories. Vieira, he hasn't had the, the track record Smith Rowe's had, but his football potential is significantly high. And his level is really, really high. If we can get him there, you know, if, and, and that we wait, don't forget what this guy can do. I mean, he could literally be, and I've seen it in my own eyes. In that Fulham game, when he came on, he was literally the best player on the pitch by a mile. You know, and he just took over the game. So that's in there. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. That's in there. How can we get that out of him on a consistent basis? And I'm not ready to turn away from that because that level was really, really high. And so we got to discover what's in Fabio. It may take it may take a loan. It may take something to happen, but something's got to get him on that pitch so he can find out his true potential. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of um, potential, um, I, I want to put this, I want to foreground this before talking maybe a little bit about set-piece threat and particularly against Burnley. But Paul, just before we started recording, um, uh, uh, reports come out from Ed Aarons in The Guardian about Norwich um, being interested in appointing our very own Carlos Cuesta as manager at the end of the season. And um, th- this is a guy we haven't talked about a lot because I think he kind of came in as he was like the player development coach right he was the one who sat down one-on-one with players and we saw him doing that in the all or nothing documentary um that (laughs) quite amusing scene where he sits down with Lacazette and shows him Benzema (laughs) Benzema plays centre forward which I know it wasn't pointed but almost seemed very pointed it's 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 like showing me Erdegaard it's like I I can't do that come on (laughs) um but you know he, he obviously had and he came in very young I remember when he was appointed under Arteta, I know I asked questions and I was like this guy's 26 and we've got a young manager do we want like 26-year-old staff with Arteta? Do we not want, you know, someone someone who's been around the block a bit more? I guess a bit like Steve Round. Steve Round left during the summer. That all went very quiet. There was no kind of, nothing was announced about his replacement. But Carlos Cuesta, to me, has looked visibly more prominent. I'm certainly seeing him on the pitch at full time. Um, you know, when the lap of honour goes on and all of that, like, it looks kind of like he's been given a, li- a bit of Steve Round's role. But I, I guess I-, I wonder what you think of the fact that at Norwich, our former loans manager is the director of football. He wants to take, by the looks of it, one of our coaches, who's 
30, I think, to manage Norwich. And it, it feels a bit like how we ended up with a lot of guys from Brentford and how a lot of guys from Brighton are now in the kind of, you know, in the top six, shall we say, like looks like Dan Ashworth might go to Manchester United and he'd been at Brighton. Like, do you think this is beginning to look like people are looking at Arsenal now and saying, ah, Arsenal are a smart club. They must have some smart guys there. And, you know, I guess a little bit about, because we don't really know what Carlos Cuesta does, but our image, I guess, and what this might say about it. Yeah, he seems like a lovely, lovely man. I remember watching the All or Nothing and thinking, I'd love to have somebody like that I could go and talk to. (laughs) And just, it seemed to be his job to make people feel better about themselves. And, uh, you know, just look at them in a certain way. I was like very intrigued by what he actually did. It can't be that all the time, can it? Um, <laughs> but it was certainly a job. I looked him up on Wikipedia. There's like two lines in there. I'm like, that's not going to be much help to me. Uh, I remember hearing along the way that he was an actual coach. And I'm like, oh, okay. He doesn't just sit in with these guys, whatever. He's a, he's a, a very man. promising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he apparently he's an actually good, well-regarded coach within the system. Seems to be the vibe I pick up. But to your bigger point of uh, might actually people looking at Arsenal as a high-functioning club and thinking, well, if I peel off one of those pieces, he'll have that superpower. Now, if they're smart, they'll think, well, look, that's not how it works. This guy has talent and he's good and he's he's come from a high-functioning system, so he knows what high-functioning is like and he knows what low what, – what, when he sees low-functioning, he'll know that is not what we're looking for. Um, and it's also a message to your people. Like it, it, it's a bit like buying an English player for the fans, right? He's a good player and he's English, and it gets the fans excited. It's it's like buying the sporting director from Brighton and bringing him to your club. It's a you got the guy, you got his know-how. It's also a message to your fans, to your organization, um, that you're going places that you have ambition, that you want to be a lot better than you are today. Um, and so there's a, and that comes into the price. And when you're selling players, we may not get to sell Carlos Cuesta, but <laughs> when you're selling players, the same thing's happening, right? They come from a functioning system that's doing well. There's a halo effect for the player. And it's a signal to your, like, you'll pay a little e- extra to get the fans excited during the summer for a player versus a player where they're all saying, oh, who's this, you know, who's this guy? What'd you get him for? He's crap. Just, you know, the uh, uh, little unfortunate to mention it, but the Ramsdale effect of actually, it turns out the player was very good, but the fans hated the idea. We had enough going on in the summer. We had five other players to, to excite and confuse us. Um, so it wasn't actually that big a deal, but if he, if that had been one of two players, we'd, signed that summer to get the fans excited, they'd have been thrown Edu off a cliff, right? Because of where he came from. And like the other the other way around, it works too. Bringing in a player for an exciting team, you never know enough about the player. So there's a lot of projection onto it. I think it'll be a sign to any club that you're looking to be a high-functioning team. And it's, it's also, look, we got Arteta from City, 
okay, we already had a relationship guy with the guy. We probably all rated him to some degree. But a huge amount of his halo effect was the fact that he was side by side with Pep Guardiola. Now, he was the hand, to use a Game of Thrones term. He was the <laughs> hand of the king. He wasn't just a coach. He was the coach. And there were lots of good stories in the media. And Pep had been hyping him along the way. But a similar family of coming from a high-functioning organization. I always joked about him leaving with the, you know, spending the last two weeks in the photocopier room before he left Man City. And it's why Arteta, I, I've pivoted again, sorry. It's why he wasn't just a coach and they made him a manager very quickly. Uh, it was clear in his intent and probably in their original thinking that they didn't just want a coach. They wanted a guy who had standards for every aspect of our football club from a footballing perspective. And that's what you look for with Carlos Cuesta. He'll come in. He won't just come in to do a bit of coaching or a bit of managing. He will come in with ideas for the club and how everything around the club should work relating to the football side of the business. Yeah, absolutely. And Norwich, I think, are just in a bit of a spiral at the moment. And, you know, they've got David Wagner and that's not going that well. And it looks like what they're trying to do is break that cycle. And uh, I think there's a couple of things going on. You know, you look at Arsenal or a club that broke the cycle. How did they break the cycle? There's something I think a little bit fashionable in terms of who are the two young coaches in Europe who are really making waves at the moment, Arteta, Xabi Alonso. So just get a young Spanish guy, basically. Um, doesn't matter who. Uh, <laughs> just just a young Spaniard and and that will sort all your problems out. Um, no, sorry, that's 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 being mean to Carlos Cuesta. But uh, Clive, um, maybe to wrap up here, you know, particularly as we come into a game against Burnley, where we took Brentford set-piece guy, right? And I remember thinking, that sounds like a good idea. Brentford are really good at set-pieces. I want their set-piece guy. And that's kind of worked pretty well. And we're playing a team who haven't been very good at defending set-pieces. And we we uh, exposed them there in the home game. I mean, the, the phrase you used a lot during the, the darker years was um, employer of choice. And I wonder what you think of... You know, this whole thing about like Carlos Cuesta might get like a good profile championship job for a team that's got aspirations to come back into the Premier League. And all right, on one hand, when the eyes are on you, your staff might get picked off by these jobs. But in, on the other hand, what a sell that is to other young coaches to say, we got Carlos Cuesta and within three years he was managing a championship club. Like if you like, we can use that in order to attract people as well. So, yeah, I guess like using the Questa discussion just as an anchor for Arsenal perhaps having that 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 halo effect, as, as Paul said. Yeah, when Arsenal uh, got Carlos Questa, he was well-renowned at that time, uh, particularly for what he's done for his age and how well-qualified he was. And so his original title was like individual development coach. And so it's the sort of coaching that... I used to do basically when I used to do it. I'm much better with one-on-ones talking to people about about their game, intricacies of their game, and other people like uh, like Albert, who's maybe more of a session coach. You know, you have guys that can control the whole group. They just do it easy. I could I could never do that. You know, so um, so yeah, it's he he is he is well renowned. And when Steve Round went, it was no surprise to me that. He wasn't replaced per se. 
and he was replaced in-house by the current group. Because how you keep talented people is by increasing their roles and responsibilities. You and know? we're seeing that at executive level, right? Took the words out of my mouth, mate. Look what we've done to Edu. <laughs> Look what we've done to Mikel Arteta as soon as we saw his ways of working. Bang, you're the manager. Look what we've done to Edu. Look what we've done to people within the club. We've given them extra roles or different roles and layered them appropriately. So I think we we go, there's going to be a time when people, talented people, are going to leave because they feel they've hit the ceiling. And so right now, we have to be looking at succession planning. Regardless, and I'm sure we are, because when you have good, talented people that are successful, you have to think someone may tap on the shoulder at some point, you know, and you have to be fair to their ambition that they may need to grow elsewhere and they can always come back, you know, and um, and so it's it's just something we have to think about. We, we do have to think about it, and um, because I listened to a Liverpool podcast this week because I'm really trying to get perspective on our club from other people and. One thing they said was, looked at Arsenal, looked at City. They said Arsenal are probably the best coach team in the league, but haven't quite got the players yet. So the, mm-hmm. they people trust the Harlands, the Fodens, the De Bruyne's, the Salah, the Trent, because they've got the medals. They've got European Cup medals in their pockets. They don't trust our players yet, so we love them. We've been talking about them, but they. But the words came from them: "We are the best coached," and and I find us. I think that's true. I think we look the best coach, we look the most interesting tactically. Our players have still got it to prove because they're quite young. That's the next phase for this club. That's a really good note, I think, on which to end maybe this episode of the podcast. And I know we have to lose Paul anyway. Um, so thanks very much for joining us. Paul, who you can follow on Twitter at Poznan in My Pants. Thank you very much. And Clive, who you can follow on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Thank you very much, Clive. Thank you very much, Steve. And we will have an instant reaction on Saturday evening, uh, UK time that is, uh, straight after the Burnley game, which will also be live streamed as well. If, if you want to be a patron or you're already a patron, you're interested in that. Otherwise, we'll be back with another episode looking back at our 10-0 win over Burnley on Monday, which we will win with 10 set pieces because Nicolas Jova is that good and he is going to be appointed the new coach of Real Madrid next week. So uh, once all that happens, we will cover it all and we'll speak to you after Burnley 0, Arsenal 10. Mm-hmm.